You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let me pray for us to get us started. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning in worship and uh, the time that you've given us to um, just uh, uh, dialogue together and sit face to face with someone else um, around the tables here this morning um, and ask some, some what might be really difficult questions for, for some of us, asking what area of our lives um, we struggle the most um, to surrender to you as our king. Um, and asking and even just thinking and dialoguing about um, where, where we need to apply uh, the innocence of, of Christ to our hearts and lives the most. And, uh, and then also just dialoguing, talking and thinking openly about um, what Jesus has been speaking to us through his word or even those places where it feels like he's been silent. Um, Lord, thank you for that opportunity to worship you this way. Um, I know that worship is not just about music. It's also about how we interact with others um, as you interact with us. Um, and, and really, really uh, a preaching uh, and, and studying your word is an act of worship. It's, um, um, it's, it's a time where your word then um, comes and speaks um, to our hearts and to our lives and even um, moves us in, in the direction of worship where we um, behold you in all your greatness and all your splendor. Uh, and so, God, as we turn back to the Gospel of Luke this morning, I pray, Lord God, that you would, uh, that you would um, turn our hearts to you. We pray that. We trust that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 uh, this morning. I just want to lead in by saying this. You've already heard me say some of this already this morning. But as we study the Gospel of Luke from beginning to end, and specifically, especially as we come into this portion this morning, we're confronted with the character and the person and the work of Jesus. And when we are confronted with Jesus, when, when Luke paints that picture of Jesus, and when, when we have him placed before us the way that Luke has done and the way that all the Gospels do, the reality for us is that we are forced to, uh, to make decisions at that point. We're forced to make decisions regarding what we will do with him. And that's really a big portion of the story that we see in Luke as we continue to examine it. We learn some specific things about Jesus. We learn that, that Jesus is the king. He's the king over all of creation. And when we arrive at that understanding, when we are confronted with the picture of Jesus' kingship over all creation, Lord, Master, King... At that point, we are forced to make a decision regarding what we will do with Jesus. We, we will either submit and surrender to Him, or we will reject Him and refuse Him as the King of our lives as we then 
place ourselves on that throne deep within our hearts, our souls, our minds. It's our life. No one can control me, right? We're, we're going to be in one place or the other. You, you can't sit on the middle of the fence on this one. And I think the truth be told is whether you're believer or unbeliever this morning, this is a place of struggle for each of us. We're either on one side of the fence or on the other, depending upon where we are at in our lives and where the condition of our hearts and our souls are. When we are confronted with Jesus the King, we are forced to make a decision regarding what we will do with Him. We will either surrender or we reject. We either submit or we refuse Him. We're also confronted uh, with this picture of Jesus um, all throughout the Gospels, and, but really specifically in the text we'll be in today. <clears throat> we're, we're confronted with this picture of Jesus as an innocent sacrifice. He's a sacrificial lamb. He's our substitute. He was given as that innocent, sacrificial substitute so that the power and the presence and the penalty. Think of those three words. The power, the presence, and the penalty of sin could be broken in your life. So that the king who actually has the authority to break that power could actually break it. Ever wonder why you struggle with sin still? It's because you're not a good king. That's why. You and I could never make good kings. All throughout the, the scriptures we see stories of kings that did pretty good things. Some that did pretty horrible things. And the reality is not one of them was perfect. David was a great king, but he was a bad king too, right? Great king. Wrote much of the Psalms. Referred to by Jesus as a man after God's own heart, right? Good king in many ways, but a very bad king. Used his power and authority to rape a naked woman who lived next door to him. That's the reality. This is, this is David. There is no good king who has ever lived other than Jesus. He is a perfect king. and At the same time, he is innocent. And it's his innocence that must be applied to our sinful lives. That's the reason you and I continue to struggle. Oftentimes, Jesus, the great king who is innocent, came to break the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin. Think about the power of sin over your life, the struggle that you face. Think about the presence of sin. Uh, Paul makes it clear in Romans that sin indwells us. It lives in us. And yet if we say that we are Christians, then it is the Spirit of God who now indwells us and lives in us. So why is it that we still struggle with the current indwelling of sin? Why is it that, that Jesus has not been enough for us? Why, why is that? When, when Jesus, the king, the great innocent king, comes, breaks that power through his work at the cross, right? He's king. He's innocent. He came and gave himself as an innocent sacrifice to, to subdue, and not just subdue, but be victorious over the power, the presence, and the penalty. The penalty for you and I, for being sinful people, is death. Not just once, but twice. It's hell. It's separation from God. This, this is a serious thing as we approach the Scriptures. Jesus spoke of hell and the penalty of sin more than, more, more than any other person throughout Scripture. Which means this is important. 
as we approach God's Word, and as I preach to you, there is either one side or the other. What you choose to do with Jesus now carries eternal ramifications and consequences. Has, has Jesus come and broken the power and the presence and the penalty of sin in your life? And if so, then that means that what you're doing is continuously, every day, applying, applying the innocence of Christ to your guilty self. Doesn't mean we walk around in guilt. It means we walk around in joy because what grace is it that a perfect person who died on your behalf and my behalf would give himself as that innocent payment for you and I? Romans chapter 3 again, Apostle Paul, the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Either that's true or it's not. There is no gray space, there is no in between. It's polarizing, right? Jesus spoke in similar ways about this message and about himself. And what we see in our passage today as we get there here in a moment is people made decisions on what to do with him. In our text today, you'll see Pilate made decisions. The Jewish people made decisions on what to do with Jesus. His followers made decisions. You and I are left here to make a decision on what we will do with Him. And here, here's the final thing about Jesus in this passage. I just preached the whole message to you in the introduction, and then we'll go back through it again after we read the text. How's that? Everybody excited? Smile. Yeah, good, good. I love you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Thank you. I feel loved. <laughs> The final piece that we're going to see about Jesus, just so that you know, is that, um, is that we'll see that he's not only the king, not, not only innocent, though those are great and good enough. Um, he's, also, he's also silent in his suffering. Silent in his suffering. Silent in his suffering. He doesn't, he doesn't knee-jerk reaction try to defend himself. He doesn't knee-jerk reaction try to attack Right? Those who are his enemies and who are abusing him, he is silent. Reminds me of a quote from Isaiah, right? Like a sheep before the slaughterers. Silent. He endured this on our behalf. And in learning these things, like, like, like you're reminded that God has spoken through His Word. And also that Jesus is the Word who has become flesh, according to John chapter 1, right? Jesus is the Word who has become flesh. He's dwelt among us. And if we do with Jesus what we see these people do in this text today, as we get ready to dive into it, if we do with Him what these people do with Him, then what we stand risking as we risk that someday Jesus himself would be would be silent towards us we continue to make war against him you continue to reject him continue to refuse him then what you risk is Christ being silent to you as you abuse him that's a heavy heavy thing to think about my hope is that that, on one side, encourages believers to lean in and hear God's Word, right? And yet, at the same time, for anyone who is here who is not yet a believer, the hope is that that, that would awaken your heart to the truth that Jesus has come and spoken to you in His Word. 
Not only that, but to some extent is speaking to us this morning through the preaching of His Word as well, right? So look at Luke 23, 1-12. Luke says this, He says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate, catch this, oh, catch this, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. In our previous passage last week, chapter 22, verses 63 to 71, we remember that Jesus' enemies had just dragged the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, into court as their suffering captive. God in the flesh was placed on trial with His creation, standing in judgment against Him and over Him. Jesus the one, the only, eternal God who, who is full of power, full of authority, who came to save sinners as the suffering Savior. He was accused of blasphemy. He was actually accused of blaspheming himself by the very people that he had created. And the question that we were left with last week, after examining Luke's portrayal of what happened there, is this, do you know Jesus? That was the question we were left with, is do you know Him? Not do you know conceptually about Him, things that you can repeat like rhetoric about, but do you know Him deep down inside? Because there is this passage where Jesus speaks of some who will come to Him at some point in time, people who have done all sorts of crazy things, such as prophesy, heal, Preach, teach, serve, right? Claim the name of Christ. People who claim to be Christian. There will be a time when some will come to Him who have done all those things and, and Jesus will say to them, Depart from Me, for I catch this word, never knew you. It's not, Depart from Me, for I once knew you, but now I don't know you. It is, depart from me, for I never knew you. He says this to people who look like Christians, talk like Christians, smell like Christians, walk like Christians. Depart from me, for I never 
knew you. This is a, a heavy warning from Jesus in other places of Scripture. And here we arrive at the same place where Luke is basically asking, do you know Him? And not just know Him like in your mind, but do you know Him deep down inside? Does your heart and soul leap to life at the reading of His Word, at the preaching of His Word, at the communion of the saints, meaning being in fellowship with other believers, does your heart awaken inside of you when those opportunities arise? I remember this last uh, week um, you know, here at the Y, uh, working out. Uh, so those of you probably don't know, but I've been trying to do an exercise routine. So you see I might be getting in, into a better shape other than round. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, uh, so I've been coming. This is week two. I finished week two. Man, that's a goal. That's a life goal for me. Week two down. Um, been lifting some weights, pumping some iron, and doing crazy sit-ups and things like that. And have run into a number of people and spoken with them. One, one uh, gentleman. Um, and we spoke this week. We prayed together. And afterwards, we were both marveling in the fact that as we shared Jesus and our lives with one another, that. That there was an awakening, there was a sense, a feeling. Like God was alive between us. Two of us had come together and shared Christ, right? And in that moment, we could sense that it was subjective, right? So objective, not like black and white. Hey, there's a hot tub in front of me. It wasn't just, it wasn't that. It was a subjective feeling that the Holy Spirit was on the move in between the two of us. Does, does, does that happen inside of you? Do you know Him not just conceptually in your heart, but do you know, or in your head, but do you know Him somewhere deep down inside where your heart heart and your soul leaps to life. Is that the way that you know Jesus? That's, that's the question of Luke's text last week. Uh, and then, then, then this week in these verses that we have before us, the question kind of remains the same but flows out of that. Do you know Jesus? Uh, but, but furthermore, what will you actually do with Him when you claim to know Him? So Luke wants us to know for sure that Jesus was not a lunatic. Not a lunatic, not a liar. He also wasn't just a great teacher or great, great prophet. Although those statements about him conceptually are true. We've got to understand that, that if he in fact is a good teacher or a good prophet or just a, a good guy altogether, right? Um, if he is those things, then, then the reality is that, and especially if he's a good prophet, the claims that he made about himself must be true. Otherwise, he's a bad prophet, right? He's a bad teacher. He's a bad person, actually. If he says these things about himself and they turn out to be false, we can no longer call him a good person, good teacher, good prophet. And what Luke wants us to know is that he's not, he is a good prophet. He is a good teacher. He is a good man. There is no one but Christ who is completely good. All of us have been broken by sin and our, and our mistakes. So what we have before us is Jesus. Picture of Him. And, 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 this, and this picture that Luke continues to build out of Christ for us demands a response. That's what happened when Jesus was walking this earth in the person. In person, as He walked... He demanded a response from everyone that came into contact with Him. Everyone who heard about Him. Everyone who saw Him. Everyone who heard His words. Everyone who experienced the presence of Christ was forced into a place where they had to make a decision on what to do with Him. Jesus is the King. 
He's the only innocent man who, who, who ever lived. And he suffered silently for you and I. What will you do with this Jesus? That's the question for us today. What will you do with him? Will you surrender to him? Or will you reject him? Will you apply his innocence to your guilt and to your sin like a, like a healing ointment? Or, or, or will you project your sinfulness onto him and actually try to prove that he is not good enough for you, that he in fact sinned, that he in fact failed you? Is that, is that where you'll be? After you study this and hear this message, where, where will you be? What will you do with him? Will you listen to his word? Or will you, will you reject his word and plug up your ears? In effect, rendering him silent to you. What, what will you do with him? What will you do with Jesus the King? That's, that's verses 1 through 3, right? That's your first point. What will you do with Jesus the king? Will you drag him into the kangaroo court of, of your intelligence that he actually gave you? Will you stand in false accusation against him? Will you, will you prop him up in the court of popular human opinion? See, Jesus is the king who stands in authority and eternal reign over your intelligence, your thoughts, and your opinions. The angel of the Lord, when he spoke to Mary... Earlier in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 30-35, he said, Do not be afraid. Listen, listen to what he says. Chapter 1, verse 30-35, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Listen to this. Listen to these words the angel is using to describe Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. He's the king. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is an eternal kingdom because he is an eternal God. Jesus is the eternal king who reigns, right? Amen. There will be no end. This is a comforting thing for us to acknowledge because every kingdom that you and I try to build, there will be an end to. Every reality that you try to build in your life, whether that be business, relationship, possessions, Whatever you try to build, even, even for those of us who are pastors in ministry, every way that we try to build our own little sinful kingdom, right? <laughs> to some extent and in some regard, there will still come an end to that earthly existence. But in Christ, there will be no end to the kingdom that He is the king of. question is, are you a part of that kingdom? Mary said to the angel, How will this be? I mean, imagine, imagine Mary, she's a virgin, right? That's exactly what she says. How's this going to happen? How am I going to have a baby? Hello, I'm a virgin. <laughs> That's a pretty good question. I think it's a legit question. I would want to ask the same question. How's this going to happen? I'm a virgin. This is seemingly impossible that the thing which God says is going to take place in her could actually take place because she's a virgin. Ever face things in your life that seem absolutely impossible, yet God, somewhere deep down inside, is saying to you, uh, this is the way I'm calling you? 
that, okay, God, how's that going to be? Because of X, Y, Z. Mary says, I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is the King, right? He's the King who stands in absolute authority over all created things. And yet, yet Luke tells us, you go back to the, the, where we're at now, Luke tells us in our current text that Jesus' enemies arose against him arose against him and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which is a lie, by the way. Bald-faced lie, if you know your scriptures. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. It's interesting that people who want to accuse Jesus have to speak lies against the truth of Jesus to try to make some sort of accusation, right? <clears throat> forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. Here's the deal. An encounter with Christ the King, an encounter with Christ who is the King over all creation, all created things, this demands a response. It demands an action, demands a reaction. Even the reaction to just sit on the sidelines silently is still a response. Still a response. The response of Jesus' enemies in this passage to his claims of kingship, the response of his enemies was to drag him into the court of popular human opinion. Drag him into the court of popular human appeal. And then, at the same time, falsely accuse him of stirring up a rebellion, right? Falsely accuse him of stirring up a rebellion, not only against his own people, the Jews, but they also falsely accused him of stirring up a rebellion against the Roman government. This is the reason why they dragged him in front of Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus' enemies, man, they, they had already decided that Jesus was guilty in their minds of their false accusations. They had already put Jesus through their own legal court system, right, with, with, with their Jewish trials. They had decided that he needed to die for all of their trumped-up charges that they had leveled against him. But, but they couldn't execute anyone. This is part of the laws of that day, is that the Jews could not enact their death penalty against Jesus without the Roman government giving a head nod to that. The reality is that the Roman government were the only ones that held the power to actually execute someone. And so the Jews needed to come to Pontius Pilate, the Jewish or, or the Roman government, Governor, right? They had to come to Pilate and make their case against Jesus so that they could hopefully get that death sentence that their hearts craved. Think about this. I mean, this is, this is a, a pivotal moment in this passage that these people, what they want to do with Jesus is put him to death. And they are going through every means possible to make it happen. How does, how does Pilate respond to Jesus the king? Luke tells us that Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' answer is, You have said so. That's Jesus' answer. It's kind of a strange way of answering the question. Pilate has heard the accusations against Jesus. He's heard the rumors. He's, in a sense, heard the prosecuting attorney. So he asked the defendant, Are you the king? Are you the king that your accusers say that you are? And Jesus' answer is this. And what you just said about me is true. I cannot argue with you. I am the king of the Jews. 
The reality is the way that Pilate asked this question and the way that the Jews um, proposed this question still didn't even have the full effect of Christ's kingliness over all things. They, they did not yet comprehend or know deep down inside. This claim, this claim by Jesus to be the king, it demands a response for all who heard it. And you, you hear it today. Though there are some of you whose hearts may be locked up tight, stone cold dead, the power of my preaching and my antics of waving my arms and speaking the words that I speak, there's no power in that alone. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What God can do this morning is wake some of your hearts up to the truth that Jesus is the King. There is nothing that you or I can do about that or say about that or think about that that can change the reality of that. Yet, there is a response that is demanded by everyone who hears. You and I are held accountable for how we respond to what we hear about Jesus, to the revelation of God Himself, of Christ Himself, to each and every one of us. We are held accountable for that. For those of you that are here and you are believers, you are Christians, this, this, this should be uh, an awakening moment again, because I think all of the Christian life is about continuing to be awakened to the gloriousness and the joy of the gospel being preached among us, that Christ is the King and you and I are not. Demands a response. If somebody claims to be King, we must respond. Point number two. What will you do with Jesus as an innocent man? Verses 4-7. through seven. See, Jesus is not only the king who demands a response, right? But he is also an innocent man who demands a response. This is the reality that Pilate had to face. Pilate was a ruthless and barbaric Roman ruler. Think about Pilate for just a moment. <coughs> this dude actually oftentimes crucified in excess of 30 plus people a day. Ruthless and barbaric man. This is who Jesus is standing in front of. And now the Jews coming to him, this murderous rage, asking him, help them enact the death penalty on a dude who claims to be the king that they never wanted. Is Jesus guilty of a crime here? Or is he an innocent man? Which one is it? To Pilate, to Pilate, Jesus doesn't appear to be guilty of any crime whatsoever. Especially against Rome. Unless he really is inciting people not to pay tribute to Caesar. Because if he was doing that, then he would be guilty of treason, high treason. But we know that not to be the truth. We know that at one point Jesus said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. Because the reality is that if you serve God, you pay your stinking taxes. right? Because you do so knowing that you honor God by doing it. So Jesus, that's what Jesus taught, so the accusations were false. To Pilate, all Jesus has done is just claim to be the king of the Jews, right? Jesus didn't admit any other claim. When he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yeah, it is as you say, I am. Jesus didn't freak out on the witness stand. He didn't go all Woo, crazy, like, right? He wasn't cursing Rome. He wasn't wigging out. He wasn't yelling um, slander against Rome or its governor. 
It's not a matter of national interest for Pilate. It's a religious issue in Pilate's eyes. Jesus is an innocent man who demands a response. So Pilate says this. Luke tells us that Pilate says to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Luke tells us that intentionally, I believe, to drive on the point that Jesus was innocent, not guilty. A man who was not guilty, coming to be abused and die for those who are guilty. This is the, this is the message of the gospel. This is grace. And if this isn't true, you have no reason to be here. You have no reason to follow him. If this is not true, the chief priests and the crowds will find no guilt in this man, but they, the Jews, they were urgent. Imagine the urgency in these people, the, the hatred, the evil, sinful hatred that they had against Jesus. They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people. He's a pastor. He's teaching in all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. He's preaching all over the place. He's teaching everywhere all these things. What Jesus did wasn't done in a box, right? So that last week, say it again this week. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. It's an innocent man. It's a religious issue. I'm washing my hands of this, man. I don't want any part of that. So the way Pilate approached this. What is your response to Jesus, the innocent man? Do you acknowledge his innocence? While simultaneously brushing him off? Do you ignore? Do you ignore? Plug your ears. Do you, do you ignore the counsel of Scripture that teaches us that Christ was a perfect and innocent, spotless sacrifice? Does this truth regarding Christ's innocence cause you? Think, think about this. Does this truth regarding Christ's innocence, does it cause you to grieve your sin against God who gave himself for you? What a beautiful place to be, to grieve my sin and cling tightly to the grace of God and the message of the gospel. But if, if, I, if I try to cling tightly to, to, to my own perfection and my own well-doing, what, what a hopeless place to be. What a great place to be to grieve that sin and cling tightly to Christ who is innocent and gave himself for us, right? Where are you with that? Point number three, what will you do with Jesus the silent sufferer, verses 8 through 12? And Jesus is definitely the king who stands in authority and eternal reign over your intelligence, over our thoughts, over our opinions. He's definitely the only perfect, innocent man who ever walked this earth. He's also the one who suffered great injustice. He suffered great injustice, and he did it in total silence. When his enemies abused him, he was silent. When his enemies accused him, he was silent. If there was Facebook in that day, there would be no Facebook rant and rave. He was silent. When his enemies abused him and accused him, when they mocked him, he was silent. When his enemies treated him like a circus sideshow, he was silent. What will you do with this Jesus? And Luke tells us that after this little kangaroo court of the Jews and after this forced trial before Pilate, Jesus' enemies took him over to Herod's mansion for further prosecution. Dude hasn't been through enough already. 
I take him over to Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, Luke tells us, he was very glad. Oh, isn't that the place that all of our hearts should be? Isn't that the place that all of our hearts should be? Glad to see Jesus. Glad to hear Jesus. Glad to know Jesus. Isn't that the place we should be? Herod, his gladness was not the kind of gladness that our hearts should be full of. Now, I would confess that the kind of gladness that Herod had in his heart to see Jesus is the kind of gladness that many of us have that God wants to rip out and replace with true, authentic gladness, a gladness that is not permeated by sin. He was glad. Why? Why was he glad? Well, he wasn't glad because this was his Savior and his King that he was ready to bow down to. Why was he glad? Luke tells us, for he had long desired to see him. Why had he long desired to see him? Well, Luke tells us again, because he had heard about him, right? And I long desire to see this guy. I'm happy to see him because I've heard so much about him, and I'm just hoping to see some sign done by him. This is what Herod wanted. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Herod was an evil Jewish ruler. If you know anything about Herod, you'll know that he was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. He beheaded John the Baptist because John the Baptist was a, was a loud preaching prophetic type, right? Who had called out John the Baptist for, or called out Herod for his sin. John the Baptist went to Herod and said, Hey dude, you can't live that way. You're living with your brother's wife. You're sleeping with her. You're having sex with her. You can't do that. It's sin. So what does John the Baptist do? Continues to call him out. What does Herod do? Throws him in prison. Chops off his head. Why? Because one of the girls that was dancing in front of him, because Herod loved to be entertained, was like, Hey, Hey, Herod, would you give me John the Baptist's head on a platter? And Herod's like, I'll do anything for you, baby. That's the way it went. This is what Herod had done with Christ's followers and was now getting ready to do with Christ. Where are you at with that today? <clears throat> in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this, we see that an encounter with Jesus demands a response, right? Jesus refused to perform for Herod. And when he did, the chief priests and the scribes that were standing nearby, vehemently accusing him. And what happened was Herod, with, with all his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then they arrayed him in splendid clothing. They went and got some of Herod's keenly clothing, put it on him, sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before that, they had been at enmity with each other. Do you see? Do you see what's happening in this text? An encounter with Jesus demands a response. The Jews wanted Jesus dead. That was their response. Pilate wanted Jesus out of his hair. That was his response, right? Herod wanted Jesus to entertain him. That was his response. In the middle of all this, Jesus just stands there silently suffering. Also silently uniting his enemies into a deeper evil hatred towards him. Well, I think at the same time, simultaneously given us who have trusted him and believed in him, great hope. Great hope because we have a Savior. Listen, if you're here and you're a believer, believer this, this is an encouragement for you and for I. 
We have great hope because Christ is our Savior who went before us and He experienced the pain and the agony of being falsely accused, wrongfully condemned, beaten and bruised, mocked and shamed, questioned and rejected. This is the Jesus that is before you today in this passage of Scripture. What will you do with Him? Are you looking to Jesus for some form of entertainment, whether believer or unbeliever hearing this message? Are you, are you looking to Him for some form of entertainment? Is He just another social experience for you? Is He just another fad to chase after? Is He, is he another fix for you to use and abuse? Is, is He your partner in your sinful quest to conquer and consume thing after thing after thing or person after person after person as you try to quench your thirst for more and more and more? Who is Jesus to you? What, what will you do with Him? Can you see Him standing there, silently suffering on your behalf, silently suffering all the abuse that humanity has hurled at Him? What will you do with Jesus? Will you surrender to Him or reject Him as your King? Will you apply His innocence to your guilt like a healing ointment, or will you project your sinfulness onto Him? Will you listen to His Word? Will you listen to His Word? Will you listen to His Word? Or will He be silent to you? What will you do with this Jesus? Let me pray. Let me pray as our worship team comes forward. Father, we pray that you would take this message and this picture of Christ in these um, verses. We pray, God, that you would apply it to our hearts now as we um, move into worship and communion and prayer as we close our time together. And God, I pray that um, for any of us who are here have not yet submitted and surrendered, <coughs> for, for, for those of us who are in places where we are, we are just still actively rejecting you, God, I pray that you would um, bring us to a place of submission and surrender to you. I pray, Lord God, that you would, uh, would, you would take this picture of Christ silently suffering innocently on our behalf so that we could be made new and be made right. I pray that you would apply that to our hearts and, and draw us to you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to be encouraged in you that, that though we are not perfect, though we are guilty, you gave yourself and you gave your son on our behalf so that we could be made right and new. That we actually now, if we've trusted in you, we, we stand in front of you perfect because you've given us that innocence. You've applied that to us. I pray, Lord God, that you would move our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close, as we close, we'll close with communion, worship, and prayer. And I also remind us, the reason that we participate in communion together is to, is to celebrate who Jesus is for us and what he has done for us. Jesus is our King. He is our King who gave Himself lovingly on our behalf. Jesus is our innocent sacrifice. Our innocent sacrifice that paid the price for our sin once and for all so that we could walk in total and complete and authentic, true freedom from what I said earlier, the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin. This is the picture of Christ, our innocent sacrifice. He's also our Savior, 
Our Savior who suffered silently so that we not only could be saved, but also comforted in our struggle against sin. Christ's life, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection, which we sang about earlier. His life, His death, and His resurrection gives us great hope here and now and for the future. Our, our future, if you trust in Him, believe in Him, your future, your hope is heaven. He's a great innocent sacrifice. He's a great fellow sufferer. And he's a great king. So, so this meal is for you if you are a believer. If you've believed these things about Christ. If you have surrendered to Him. That's what this meal is for. Communion. The bread and the juice. Signifying Christ's broken body and shed blood. It is for you and I as believers. If you're here and you have not authentically surrendered your life and walking in repentance, which then is bearing the fruit of holiness in your life. If that's not you... Then, then this meal may not be for you, especially if you would categorize yourself as someone who does not believe. And the reason I say these things is I don't want you to drink judgment upon yourself. I also don't want any of us to enter into religious activity just because it's cool to do or because everybody else is doing it. I want you to do this because you trust it in Christ. So these moments are for you if you are a believer. You could have become a believer now. You could become a believer in a few moments if you'd like. There will be some of us near the front to serve that communion. If that's you, if you're here and you're wrestling with believing in Christ, love to pray with you about that. You come to that moment where you're like, I want to surrender my life to the Lord. I want to pray with you about that. So the two of us near the front would love to pray with you for that. So let's close in worship and in prayer. Remembering Christ is our King. He is our innocent sacrifice, and He is our silently suffering Savior. Thanks for letting me preach. Let's stand. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.